Um, each year, uh, the Bush Center hosts two lectureships, uh, the Carver Barnes Lecture in the spring and the Drummond Bush Lecture in the fall. Uh, the Drummond Bush Lecture was established in 2011 and made possible by a generous gift from Mrs. Drummond in memory of her late husband, Dr. Louis Drummond, fourth president of Southeastern Seminary. This lectureship also honors L. Russ Bush, who at the time of his death was professor of philosophy at Southeastern Seminary and director of the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture. The main purpose of this lecture is to address apologetic and cultural issues related to the life and ministry of the church. I've been looking forward to tonight's meeting for quite a while. Um, Dr. He uh, Dan Heimbach, a, a couple of years ago, we were at a meeting, and he uh, mentioned to me, he said, uh, Ken, have you read uh, Brent Waters' uh, This Mortal Flesh? And I said, no, I haven't. And so on his recommendation, I purchased a copy of the book, and, and I shamelessly had him sign it uh, for me tonight. Uh, and <clears throat> as uh, after I read it, I thought, okay, uh, somehow, some way, I've got to get uh, Dr. Waters here to speak for us. And it just so happened uh, that um, in January, I was at a meeting in Los Angeles, and lo and behold, I'm sitting next to this fellow named Brent Waters. Uh, and so I said, are you the guy that wrote uh, uh, This Mortal Flesh? He said, in the flesh. And so uh, we, we then uh, struck up a conversation, and before it was over with, we, we had him scheduled to be with us this fall. Now, uh, after we left, uh, I sent him an email re uh, just verifying. Then I kept on sending emails to him and not hearing from him. So I began to wonder what's going on. And finally, after about a couple of months, he sent me an e uh, email saying, Ken, um, I've, had, I've been in the hospital. I have had Legionnaire's disease. Uh, and so he uh, nearly, we nearly lost him this spring. Uh, and we are we're really glad you're here with us tonight. Uh, yes, uh, and he's glad to be here with us. And so we got to talking. Uh, I asked him whenever he, when he got Legionnaire's disease, and he said, evidently, I got it at the hotel where we were staying. Now, <clears throat> you know, this is one of the more uh, conflicted moments uh, that I had today as I'm thinking, you know, boy, I'm really sorry Dr. Waters uh, came down with Legionnaire's disease. And I had that and this is still part of my fallenness where I need to be further sanctified, I thought to myself, boy, I'm thankful that I didn't get it too. And so uh, be that as it may, Dr. Waters, we are delighted that you're with us uh, tonight. We do welcome Dr. Brent Waters. Uh, he has a DPhil, is the Jerry and Mary Joy Professor of Social, Christian Social Ethics and Director of the Jerry L. and Mary Jo Steed. Is it Steed or Stead? Stead, Center for Ethics and Values at Garrett Evangelical Theological Seminary in Evanston, Illinois. He is the author uh, of the book Just Capitalism, A Christian Ethic of Globalization. Uh, he's also the author of uh, the book uh, This Mortal Flesh, uh, Incarnation and Bioethics. There's a whole list of other books that I could read. Uh, it's quite extensive. Uh, he has also written numerous articles and lectured extensively on the relationship uh, among theology, ethics, and technology. 
He is the recipient of the Paul Ramsey Award for Excellence in Bioethics in 2016. He has served previously as the director for the Center of Business, Religion, and Public Life at the Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. He's a graduate of University of Redlands uh, with his BA School of Theology at Claremont for his MDiv and DMIN and University of Oxford for his DPhil. Tonight, he will be lecturing on disembodied bioethics, the incarnation, embodiment, and late modern medicine. Will you join me in welcoming Dr. Brent Waters? Again, thank you for that gracious uh, introduction, and thank you and Emily for your hospitality. I've already enjoyed myself a great deal and hope to come back. And uh, it is an honor to be the Drummond Bush lecturer this year. Um, and thank you for all your good work here at the center. Um, just a quick note on having spent a considerable amount of the first part of the year in a hospital. just want to go on public record saying thank God for nurses. Um, I mean, doctors are a little bit like Melchizedek. <laughs> they, they drift into the room, say a few words, and drift out. But the nurses are there day in and day out. And uh, I've never served in the military, but I think this is what sergeants must be like. For one moment, they're cussing you out, and the next moment, treating you with motherly affection. <laughs> and uh, if we get into QA, I'll explain this more. It's changed how I think about bioethics, actually being a patient of extended care. I am often accused of being a bioethicist, although not entirely correct, for I regard myself as a moral theologian who uses bioethics to think about theology, I am not offended by the allegation, since I suppose there are worse things than being a bioethicist. Despite my stealthy identity, I hope I have made some modest contributions to the field over, over the last 30 years or so. A quick digression. Bioethics is not confined to medical ethics but also includes considerations of how technologies, most often deployed by or related to medicine, are transforming perceptions of what it means to be human and more expansively the human condition. For example, direct communication between the human brain and various digital devices that are used for therapeutic reasons can also be used to enhance human performance. But over time, will the technologies utilizing this interface simply become part of our identities that we take for granted. It is an unwieldy discipline, but this evening I will focus primarily on issues related more directly to healthcare. Anyway, over the last three decades, bioethics has changed a great deal in how it goes about doing its work, largely in response to advances in preventive, diagnostic, and therapeutic techniques. These advances have drawn upon rapid developments in such areas as genetics, biotechnology, prosthetics, nanotechnology, information technology, and even 3D printing. All these advances and changes in healthcare have created issues that thankfully keep bioethicists and people like me employed. I think the most curious change that, that has occurred since I first started hanging out with the Guild of Bioethicists involves the perception of the body. When I was young, the human body was perceived as a given condition imposing intractable limits. Humans were finite and mortal. Medicine could at best buy a few extra years and ease the pain of disease and injury, but there was no serious challenge 
to the reality that humans naturally grow old and they die. The principal task of medicine then was to help patients come to terms with their finitude and with their mortality. The body, in short, was an object of care. Today there's a growing perception of the body as an unwanted constraint against the will, and medicine should be dedicated to overcoming the limits of being embodied. Physicians are not expected to help patients manage and come to terms with their finitude and mortality, but to wage an incessant war against these constraints with a growing arsenal of sophisticated technological weapons. The body should be an artifact of medical and technological ingenuity instead of an arbitrary given. The body is now a problem to be solved. How did we get here? I'm afraid that to answer that question, I need to inflict a quick history of bioethics upon you. But stay with me, for I will try to make this tolerably brief as possible. The birth of bioethics occurred roughly in the mid-1960s in response, in part, to clearly immoral research conducted on unwilling or unknowing subjects. But more broadly, it was a reaction to such headline-catching breakthroughs as the first heart transplant and birth of a baby using in vitro fertilization. Hence, the subsequent tendency of bioethics to fixate on issues associated with the beginning and end of life. The first phase was dominated by theologians, and almost exclusively Christian ones at that. Their principal task was to create a person-centered practice of medicine, to see the patient as person. These theologians were troubled that the success of modern medicine was also diminishing the personhood of patients, who were seen and treated as collections of biological parts and systems. It was the disease rather than the person that the doctor was treating. In other words, I had a cardiologist for a while, and one day I just asked him, am I just a heart to you? because he never looked me in the eye. He was always looking at the charts. This reductionist tendency was most acute at the end of life. Increasingly, the process of dying was occurring over an extended period of time through surgical interventions, drugs, deployment of ventilators, and the like. Patients were dying slowly in pieces rather than as a whole person. Paul Ramsey, who incidentally taught at Garrett, where I now work, before moving on to Princeton, was one of these, those earliest theologians who reacted forcefully against the state of affairs. He insisted that medical care should always be person-centered because every patient was not a collection of failing biological parts, but always simultaneously an embodied soul and an ensouled body and should be treated as such. The force of his argument is captured in the provocative titles of such essays as On Only Caring for the Dying and The Indignity of Dying a Death with Dignity. For Ramsey, medicine was not a relationship between physician and patient, but one person caring for another person. The reign of the theologians, however, was short-lived. The primary reason for their demise was that although they shared a dedication to a person-centered medical care, there was absolutely no agreement on who or what is a person. At one extreme, it was insisted that being alive is the sole criterion of personhood. Consequently, patients should always be treated as persons from the moment of conception until the last breath. At the other extreme, it was insisted that multiple criteria, such as consciousness, brain function, or minimal IQ, could be used to determine the presence or absence of personhood. 
Consequently, some patients could be treated as non-persons at various stages of life, such as being in the womb or on, in a persistent vegetative state. This lack of consensus was not very useful in guiding the actual practice of medicine. So in the second stage of bioethics, philosophers moved in to fill the void. They too lacked a consensus regarding personhood, but they devised a useful rule of thumb. The, to oversimplify, um, a person is someone who is capable of making decisions that she believes is in her self-interest. If someone is not capable, then a responsible and conscientious person should be assigned to make those decisions on her behalf. The rule of thumb has helped to develop four ethical principles that have come to dominate both bioethics and medical practice. One, non-malfeasance, do not intentionally harm a patient. Two, beneficence, treat patients in ways that are judged to benefit them. Three, justice, do not treat patients unfairly so that some benefit while others are exploited or unfairly discriminated against. And four, autonomy, patients or their surrogates must give their informed consent to treatment. Respecting autonomy bears the heaviest weight among these principles because it preserves a patient-centered practice of medicine. Healthcare professionals can only do what I allow them to do to me, except in emergencies. Bioethics moved away from the patient as person to the patient as autonomous person. I believe we are entering a third phase transition from the patient as autonomous person to the patient as consumer. In this transition, the philosophers are being replaced by managers and lawyers. This consumerist stance is a logical consequence of autonomy. If patients should determine their course of treatment, why should they settle for a limited range of options that healthcare providers offer? They should demand more, and they are. What are we as consumers of healthcare demanding? Increasingly, we are demanding that medicine help us overcome unwanted constraints imposed by the body, especially as we grow older. And so enhancing physical and cognitive performance is complementing and supplementing the more traditional medical practices of prevention, diagnosis, and therapy. Consumers want their healthcare providers to provide them with, to help them live long, physically vigorous, and mentally alert lives. Hence the image of pensioners is no longer oldsters dozing off in rocking chairs, but endless rounds day after day blissfully playing golf. Who knows if Mick Jagger will ever call it quits. <laughs> and if we take autonomy seriously as the ability of persons to take action on behalf of their respective self-interests, then no compelling moral objection can be raised against healthcare providers satisfying this demand so long as the medical products that are consumed are relatively safe and reliable. These three phases of bioethics, the patient as person, the patient as autonomous person, and the patient as consumer, are accompanied by two roughly corresponding transitions in medical practice that I will mention briefly. The first transition is from a paternalistic practice of medicine to one that is contractual. In the paternalistic practice of medicine, the physician, in virtue of his or her specialized training, expertise, and experience, knew what was best for the patient, period. When I was young, for example, 
A visit to the doctor went something like this. I would state my complaint. The doctor would then poke and probe me with various instruments and then tell me to do this and that. That was the end of the conversation. And in the next visit, if I confessed that I failed to do what I was told, I could, I could expect a severe scolding. I'm not suggesting that these physicians were cruel tyrants. To the contrary, they were often wise, kind, and benevolent. But it was clear they were in charge, and my role, if I wanted to get better, was to obey their commands. A visit to the doctor's office is no longer like this. After stating my complaint, and as I grow older, I complain much more frequently, the doctor authorizes a battery of tests and may refer me to a specialist or two. Once all the data has been collected, my doctor or a specialist describes a range of treatment options, and I decide which, if any, I will undertake. In this, excuse me, my paper is not cooperating. Okay. In this um, contractual relationship between physician and autonomous patient, a number of safeguards are needed to protect both parties. This is why when you go to the doctor's office, you, formed, you sign informed consent documents, those pages filled with small print that we sign but rarely read, authorizing who the doctor may confer with, advanced care directives, and durable power of attorney, and those forms are always kept on file and updated regularly. The second current transition is from contractual practice of medicine to consumerist healthcare. In this transition, healthcare providers are increasingly and effectively asking consumers what they think of their products. Are you happy with what we provide? And what else do you want? The signs of this transition are subtle, but nonetheless telling. Two admittedly simple examples will suffice. First, within a day or two following a visit to the doctor's office, my healthcare provider emails a link to an evaluation form. On a scale of 1 to 10, I am asked how satisfying my visit was. Most of the questions involve ease in making the appointment, the friendliness and communication skills of the staff, the attractiveness of the waiting room, how long I waited, and so on. The final question is always how likely I might be to recommend this office to a friend or family member. My health care provider is always gauging my satisfaction with the services it provides. But they also want to know what else I want. The second example, on a recent visit to the doctor's office, a nurse, as usual, updated my charts, weighed me, took my blood pressure and temperature, and then left. And as usual, I waited patiently for the doctor. But this time, a young woman, not wearing a white jacket, came in and introduced herself as my health care concierge. She described briefly what she was hired to do and gave me her business card and pamphlet. She then asked me, what lifestyle goals can UPMC help you achieve? Note, lifestyle, not health goals. I find this a very curious question because it presumes that healthcare has become such a dominant part of my life that I cannot imagine a good life without it. And the presumption is probably correct, especially among the aging, such as myself. They, we, want assistance in overcoming the physical and mental decline that accompanies growing older. It is not an unreasonable request. 
The healthcare industry has tapped into this strong consumer's desire to live long and healthy lives. To a remarkable extent, this demand is being met through improved diet and exercise, drugs, joint replacements, and other surgical interventions. Those having excellence or those having access to excellent health care are tending to live longer and healthier lives. The healthcare industry is promising its customers that it can help them live better lives over a more extended period of time. There is another and there is nothing inherently wrong in striving to become better. Nothing wrong in trying to make a better human being or to become better at being human. But in offering the promise of long and healthy lives, can healthcare ever satisfy this demand fully? If one is healthy, can a life ever be too long? Have you ever met a person complaining about being too healthy? Is there a point when the perfect age and state of health is reached that satisfies all of one's heart's desires? This dilemma is compounded by an unfortunate phrase that was coined in, bio, in the bioethics literature about a decade ago, that, quote, aging is a disease. I think this was meant as a shorthand reference to a list of maladies associated with aging, such as declining physical strength and dexterity, memory loss, slower cognition, susceptibility to illness, and the like. And as I mentioned previously, we are making notable advances in treating an aging population. But if aging is a disease that can be treated, doesn't this imply that someday technologies can be developed to cure it? What would it mean to cure aging? It would probably mean preserving some ideal or perfect age once it has been reached in conjunction with enhancing certain physical and cognitive capabilities. Once this age is reached, medical treatments would be deployed to prevent any deterioration. In short, humans would age to a certain point, but no further. Another digression. St. Augustine claimed that 30 was the ideal or perfect age when humans are at the pinnacle of their physical and mental prowess. Um, so perhaps becoming perpetually 30 is what healthcare consumers want. Personally, I found 25 much better, but that's um, not, not important to mention. Anyway. More importantly, living this ideal or perfect age would be sustained for a very long time, perhaps indefinitely. If aging is cured, then presumably no one need die except by choice or misfortune. Now, lest you think me daft, there are some very clever and well-funded people who are pursuing R&D projects designed to greatly extend human longevity. And the word immortality is starting to be uttered with the purported confidence that it is an achievable goal. Parenthetically, I don't know if this confidence is genuine or bravado, but in either case, it is starting to capture public attention, especially the attention of aging medical consumers. Death is increasingly perceived as a matter of choice rather than necessity. This fascination with achieving personal immortality is most pronounced among the more Promethean transhumanists. In the words of Max Moore, a prominent transhumanist philosopher, aging and death victimizes all humans, thereby placing an unacceptable imposition on the human race. Consequently, technology should be developed that extend longevity not by a few years, but by centuries, perhaps millennia, 
or even better, achieving immortality. There are currently three often overlapping strategies currently at play to achieve this goal. The first may be characterized as biological immortality. With anticipated developments in genetics and biotechnologies, the average lifespan can be increased dramatically, perhaps indefinitely. The twofold challenge is to prevent the shortening of the telomeres. In other words, those are the things on, on your genes, and they shorten every time they, they go through. A, 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 so it's, you have what's called the Xerox effect. If you take a copy of a copy of a copy, eventually it fades. What they want to do is trick the telomeres into not shortening. And in principle, immortality, because you can continually just keep the process going. In addition, the immune, the immune system would be genetically enhanced and deleterious genetic defects removed or corrected to protect individuals from life-threatening and chronic diseases or disabilities. Aubrey de Grey, for instance, contends that living for 150 or 200 years will soon become routine. With further technological innovation, much more dramatic increases will be forthcoming, and immortality is not out of the question since infinite cellular rejuvenation cannot be ruled out in principle. For de Grey, winning the war against aging, and therefore death, is a matter of efficient engineering. The DNA that natural selection haphazardly concocted simply needs to be redesigned in line with human values and purposes. Moreover, there is a moral imperative driving de Grey's quest for biological immortality. For he insists that mortality is not simply an unfortunate aspect of being human, but an unmitigated tragedy that can and should be overcome through appropriate research and technological development. In other words, for, for de Grey, um, he takes it personally he's going to die, even though if you point out and say, well, don't take it personally, it happens to everybody. But it's, it's a, happening to everybody is what he wants to eliminate because he regards it as a tragedy. If, however, human biology proves less pliable than hoped, all is not lost, for there is the second approach of bionic immortality. With anticipated advances in nanotechnology and robotics, as various body parts wear out, they will be replaced with artificial substitutes. Synthetic blood vessels and skin will replace their less durable natural counterparts. And as muscles deteriorate, arms and legs will be assisted or replaced with sophisticated prosthetics. Nanobots will be injected to surgically repair or replace diseased organs, and neuroenhancers inserted into the brain to prevent the deterioration of memory and other cognitive functions. Admittedly, these artificial substitutes will wear out over time, but they will be replaced with new and improved versions. Presumably, such maintenance could be undertaken indefinitely. In principle, a bionic being could live forever so long as the artificial parts are properly maintained, repaired, and replaced as needed. Additionally, physical and cognitive functions will not only be preserved, but also enhanced. Individuals will enjoy the benefits of improved cardiovascular systems, greater strength and agility, and enhanced intelligence and memory. There are, unfortunately, some liabilities accompanying this approach. The electronic and mechanical systems can malfunction, and a hybrid or cyborg is still vulnerable to accidents or malicious acts resulting in death. Although a predominantly artificial body is an improvement, 
it is still not an ideal solution in overcoming the limits of embodiment. This leads to the third and most speculative approach, virtual immortality. Following such visionary leaders in the fields of artificial intelligence and robotics as Ray Kurzweil and Hans Moravik, the information contained in the brain that constitutes a person's memories, experience, and personality can be digitized. In the near future, they contend highly sophisticated imaging devices will scan the brain to collect this information and in turn upload it into a computer. Once this information has been organized and stored, it can then be downloaded into a robotic or virtual reality host. With frequently updated and multiple backups, the uploading and downloading process can be repeated indefinitely. Consequently, one's virtual self is virtually immortal. Now, you may object that a person cannot be reduced to a series of zeros and ones that can be shuffled back and forth between robotic bodies and virtual reality programs. But Kurzweil and Moravec are quick to reply that since the mind is not a material object, and the mind is ultimately what a person is, then it cannot be anything other than information. A personality is comprised of a pattern of organized data that is created and stored over time. A biological body is merely a natural prosthetic preserving this pattern. Unfortunately, nature has not produced a very reliable or enduring prosthetic, so technology must be used to produce a better model. In liberating the mind from the biological body, nothing essential is lost, for the information pattern of a person's identity is preserved. Then, in Moravec's words, I am preserved, the rest is mere jelly. In short, technology can and should be developed to save individuals from the poor jelly-like conditions of being human. I forget the, the science fiction show, but the aliens when they scanned us, simply referred to us as uh, water bags. Because we're, because we're like, pardon? Star Trek. Was it Star Trek? 1960s Trek. Are you a Trekker? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> to understate, the transhumanists want medicine to undertake an ambitious and transformative enterprise. Why settle for making humans better when you can make them better than human? Why settle for this? Why not simply cast off our poor jelly-like bodies to become all that we can be and more? Why not free the human race from a nature that is indifferent to our flourishing? To return to Max Moore, an excerpt from his, quote, letter to Mother Nature reads, Mother Nature, truly we are grateful for what you made us. No doubt you did the best you could. However, with all due respect, we must say that you have in many ways done a poor job with the human constitution. You have made us vulnerable to disease and damage. You compel us to age and die, just as we are beginning to attain wisdom. What you have made is glorious, yet deeply flawed. We have decided that it is time to amend the human constitution. Now, I am not an engineer, nor the son of an engineer, so I don't know if the technological advances required to amend the human constitution are possible or not. I don't know if the transhumanist vision is realistic or mere fantasy. But in either case, 
the rhetoric is starting to shape the public imagination and then consequently what people desire. And if healthcare consumers demand longer and healthier lives to be made better than human, how can providers, if it is within their power to do so, resist fulfilling these desires if they want to keep satisfied customers, at least those with sufficient financial wherewithal? As the admittedly extreme transhumanist vision discloses, consumerist health care transforms the practice of medicine. It is no longer focused on the body, but seeks to liberate the autonomous person from his or her jelly-like prison. Medicine resembles an engineering project more and more, and we are already seeing some faint signs of this resemblance. My medical provider, for instance, wants to help me achieve not just my health care objectives, but my lifestyle goals. When I put on my bioethicist hat and hang out with the Guild, I find that as a theologian, I have a very hard sell to make. For I want to say something like this. Because of my religious convictions, I believe it is good to be embodied. That is how we were created by the Creator. And if it is good to be embodied, then it is also good to be finite and mortal. It is a package deal. My principal reason for this insistence is that I believe that a good life is more akin to a story than an engineering project. A good story has a beginning, a middle, a fitting end. Without an end, there is no story, only endless and pointless rhetoric. And it is the end that makes us human and humane, what we were created to be and to become. To eliminate death from the storyline would change what it means to be human. And I'm not convinced a change for the better. In short, I want a medical practice that helps me to come to terms with my finitude and mortality rather than treating me as an engineering project. But let us be honest, it is not easy to affirm finitude and mortality because it also requires affirming our embodiment. And bodies frustrate our desires because they limit what we can do. I'm still a bit angry with God that I was not born with the physical attributes to fulfill my fondest boyhood dream of becoming a major league pitcher. And bodies also deteriorate and eventually they fail. I've reached that point where playing baseball is a memory, not an active pastime. I know and I know that eventually my life will come to an end. Creatures live in the time allotted to them and eventually it runs out. I do not have sufficient time to do everything I might want to do, for the what has been of my life expands as the not yet recedes. Remembrance slowly takes precedent over anticipation, or as one columnist said, increasingly I drive by looking in the rearview mirror. The fact that finitude and death are natural offers little solace confronting this awkward dance between past and future. Because as Karl Barth concedes, the prospect of an impending and certain death remains, quote, a monstrous reality that, try as we might, cannot be ignored or evaded. Consequently, it is not surprising that medicine wages a desperate but futile campaign against finitude and mortality, or at the very least tries us to ease their grisly grip. Is there anything that Christians might or should say in the face of this monstrous reality? 
two things perhaps. First, allotted time is what makes creaturely life possible, for it is the form of human existence. Again in Bart's words, if man had no time, if his existence were timeless, he would have no life. Creation and its creatures cannot be eternal, otherwise it would simply be another god. Life in and constrained by time is the only way creatures can live. Second, although death will have its say, it does not have the final word. In the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, a second history is inaugurated. Easter is an event that takes place in time, but also anticipates its fulfillment in eternity. The resurrection, as well as the ascension, is a proleptic sign of the parousia. The being of Jesus in time is not merely a being in the present and the past. It is also being in the future, a coming being. And in, the coming, uh, and, in, and in that coming, the time of creatures, my time, your time, is taken up into God's eternity. The necessity of allotted time and its fulfillment in Jesus' resurrection, ascension, and parousia does not negate the monstrous reality of death, but it does ease its sting. It is in baptism that we catch a glimpse of this admittedly uneasy resolution of creaturely finitude and mortality with the eternity of the Creator. Again, as Bart reminds, who are Christians? Those who by the baptism of Jesus' death have been buried with him, who can no longer live unto themselves, but only unto him who died and rose again for them. It should be added that baptism is also the initiation into the church as the body of Christ on earth. And it is here where Christians learn how to live no longer unto themselves and do so as finite and mortal creatures in fellowship with, finite, with other finite and mortal creatures. In other words, back a long time ago when I used to teach undergraduates, where they really got a little angry, well, more than that, they got pissed off at me. And because uh, I would, I'd tell them, uh, your life is not your own. It's on loan. It's a gift. And that is a very countercultural argument, I think, for late, late moderns to accept. In fact, it's, it's insulting because we believe we own ourselves. In the doctrine of the it is the doctrine of the incarnation that permits Christian theology more broadly to embrace finitude and mortality as a constitutive feature of the human condition rather than a problem to be overcome. The Incarnation is not merely a story about a baby we celebrate at Advent, Christmas, and Epiphany. To the contrary, it is the core of the Gospel. The good news is that the Word became flesh and was pleased to dwell among us. God became a human creature. The Creator took on the flesh and bone of the creatures inhabiting creation, and in doing so affirms their status as finite and mortal creatures. Jesus does not cheat death. He suffers and he dies. But in his resurrection from the dead, he inaugurates a new creation as its first fruits. The incarnation reminds us that to be a creature is necessarily to be finite and mortal. Even more strongly, it is good to be finite and mortal. Consequently, it is also good to be embodied despite whatever limitations our bodies impose upon us. It is right that one generation passes on to the next, and therefore that it is good that we are born, we grow old, we care for one another, and we miss those who die. 
The body is properly an object of care and not a problem to be overcome. Make no mistake, that is a hard sell in consumerist-driven healthcare. As I have mentioned, we increasingly turn to medicine to fabricate something better and more enduring than the bodies that nature gives us, a more efficient prosthetic of the will. And in doing so, we are not pleased to dwell among fellow creatures. Rather than affirming the word made flesh, we prefer to turn flesh into data that we can more easily manipulate and transform into our liking. And to late moderns, this is an easy sell. For in overcoming the purported problem of embodiment, they will live longer and better lives. Who would not want this? Who would not want a healthcare system that can create happy and satisfied customers with the potential to live forever? Yet as Christians, I believe we should steadfastly resist this alluring offer because it is a false promise that is ultimately anti-human. To be human is inevitably to suffer at some points within our allotted times. It is as finite and mortal creatures, as fragile and vulnerable beings, that God was pleased to become one of us and one with us. This is one reason why embodiment is not a problem to be solved, but a gift and blessing to be embraced with gratitude. This does not mean that our bodies are not without their burdens, but it is as embodied creatures that we live and love with both joy and sorrow this side of eternity. Moreover, it is perilous to despise that which God loves. I am aware that much of what I have said is highly critical and skeptical of the changes I have witnessed in bioethics and healthcare over the years. I am, after all, an overeducated academic and was trained to be a critic. So some words of praise for medicine are in order. I have no desire to return to a paternalistic practice of medicine, and I appreciate safeguards protecting my, my autonomy because I should take responsibility for my own health care decisions. I am personally grateful for the great preventative, diagnostic, and therapeutic strides that have been made. I will not bore you with the details, but without these advances, there's a good chance I would be dead today. I am also a voracious consumer of medical goods and services. I happily embrace almost anything my doctor suggests that might improve my quality of life. To borrow from St. Augustine, I know I need to deal more attentively with my finitude and mortality, but not now. It would be uncharacteristic, however, if I entered on such a cheerful tone. So I will conclude with three cautionary notes. We have already started down the road of making human beings better, and the destination might or might not include making beings better than human. I don't think there is any realistic prospect about turning back. But following Hannah Arendt, sometimes you must stop and think about what you are doing and where you are heading. Course corrections can be made along a journey. First cautionary note. The Canadian philosopher, George Grant, was fond of quoting a Spanish proverb. Take what you want, said God. Take it and pay for it. This adage is a reminder that no act is free. Any action, whether intended to be progressive or not, has its costs. And we cannot know precisely 
what those costs will be in advance. It will be no different in using medicine to make us better humans, perhaps better than humans. What will we give up? What will be lost over time in this quest to overcome embodiment with its unwanted finitude and mortality? And will the price extracted prove reasonable or exorbitant? Second cautionary note. Overcoming the constraints imposed by the body, or at least greatly relieving them, is a quest for perfection. Okay. It is another form of Pelagianism. At last, we will be truly free to do as we will. But there are hidden traps along this journey toward an envisioned, perfect destination. Nearly 50 years ago, John Passmore wrote a book entitled The Perfectibility of Man. He chronicled various historical attempts of achieving either intellectual, spiritual, moral, or racial perfection. All these attempts ended in failure for different reasons. But each shared one thing in common. Chasing after an often ill-defined goal of perfection was always accompanied by rising levels of intolerance of those who were judged to be unfit for the journey. These perceived recalcitrant enemies of progress soon became an unsufferable nuisance and were sub subjected to bigotry or worse, unspeakable cruelty and violence. I don't know if the latest round of seeking perfection that we are undertaking will inevitably end in failure. But I think an aphorism attributed to Mark Twain is right in insisting that his history doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. Perhaps we should remind ourselves often of St. Augustine's teaching that it is the bonds of imperfection that make us human and keep us humane. Perhaps we are at our best when we admit that rather than trying to eliminate our vulnerabilities, we should care for one another accordingly. Final cautionary note. Idwal Jones penned High Bonnet, a novel of Epicurean adventures. It is a story about chefs and gourmets in late 19th century Paris. Toward the end of the story, the master chef, Francois, dies fittingly in a kitchen while preparing a meal. His most loyal student makes the following observation. Not originality, but perfection is the lodestar of the virtuoso, who knows that a perfect work cannot be improved upon, and that it takes more skill and conscience to make a vibrant, living copy than to create a poor original. If we cannot resist the attraction of pursuing perfection, then can we at least be clear about what we are trying to perfect? The effort to make human beings better than human will, I believe, end in poor originality. Would not a vibrant, living copy of being human be preferable, namely as creatures created to love God and their neighbors? Neighbors who were created by their creator as embodied, finite, immortal beings. Maybe, just maybe, this perfection of neighbor love is worth pursuing. And can we devise a practice of medicine that will actually help us achieve this end? Thank you.